Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now we re-ran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the 11th episode of Risk ever to be heard from February of 2010. Here is Secrets Revealed. When you want to take a risk, go ahead, take a risk. 
my head Let us know, take a risk, let us know Go ahead, tell us all, then we will all laugh at you Ha ha Polka music, folks. We started with some Jordan Cooper polka music, and we made it through in one piece. I am Kevin Allison, and this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Today we'll be hearing tales of secrets. So please, what we say here stays in this digital audio playback device. Our first secret sharer hosts a show called Neon Lights in Brooklyn at Triskelion Arts. He's called Jeff Seal. His story is called Away With Words. When I was 13, I was diagnosed with a mild case of Tourette's syndrome. It can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. You know, there's like motor tics of like clearing your throat, which I did a lot of, or coughing. It's sort of like one of those whack-a-moles. Once you hit down one of the little moles or whatever, another one pops up. You can stop them for a while, but at a certain point, you're going to have to do some sort of tick. A big thing I had for a long time is I had to touch everything. If I was sitting at a table, I would have to run my hands in all the different crevices. And the more you touch, the more you still need to touch beyond that. And so what I would do is I would start touching the crevices in the table. And then I was like, all right, I'm just going to dip in my mind the entire table in water. After I did that, then I'd be like, all right, I'd have to dip the entire room in water, then the entire house. And then I would dip the whole block that I was living on, then the entire county of Los Angeles, which is big if you've lived there. The only way I could deal with it was by imagining the entire earth being dipped in a whole vat of water, everything from the spatula in my kitchen to the Grand Canyon. And that was the only way to sort of satiate that desire. I did a thing for a while where every few steps as I was walking, I'd have to reach down and grab my socks and just kind of readjust them. Or I would always readjust my waistline, like my underwear and my pants and constantly be moving that around. I didn't really tell too many people that I had Tourette's Syndrome. I had to tell some of my teachers who were actually sort of asking for an explanation to some of my behavior in class. I told them and I told some close friends or whatever, but for the most part, I didn't really tell anybody all throughout junior high and high school. I wasn't really embarrassed or ashamed of it. I just didn't really see the need to tell people. It's kind of like if you're diagnosed with chronic bad breath, You don't necessarily go around telling everybody you have chronic bad breath. You just hope they don't notice. During this time, I was on a lot of different medications for it. And I didn't really know how much of my personality and my behavior was because of who I was and how much it was because of the fact that I was on tons of different medication. So I sort of just decided that when I was going into college, I was like, no more medication. And I will tell people that I have Tourette's syndrome. Freshman year in the dorms, I was telling one of my friends that I had Tourette's, and he told me about a documentary he had seen about people with Tourette's. He was telling me about one person who had this tick where he would constantly yell out, piss on my face. And so I thought that was really funny. And kind of as a joke, I sort of adopted that as my own tick. Just sort of like, I've got Tourette's syndrome, piss on my face. It sort of became like a catchphrase. I kind of became known as the guy with treads that was yelling out, piss on my face. 
And then at some point, I don't really remember exactly when or why, but I just decided to start saying penis vagina constantly. It's sort of a comment on Tourette's and like what people assume Tourette's to be. A big part of Tourette's is just that urge to say and do that which you're not supposed to say and do. So I just kind of went with it and embraced it and as a joke was just yelling out all this really random obscene stuff basically for laughs. I took on these tics kind of ironically but they sort of became enmeshed in my actual personality and my dialogue and they became almost like meta tics. Tics in and of themselves and they became sort of floating modifiers. You know, I'd be like, well, I'd love to go out drinking with you guys tonight, but piss on my face, uh, I gotta write this paper, but uh, penis vagina, have fun without me. One night, this reached absurd levels. Uh, when I was walking home by myself drunk across campus and I had found some chalk that some other people had left out and I just decided to write penis vagina all over campus. And in my drunken logic, I felt like I was making an allusion to the scene in Black Boy by Richard Wright, where the guy, as a young kid, writes bad words all over town and then gets in trouble for it, but realizes the power of words. I didn't get in trouble or anything, but a lot of people saw me like, hey, did you write penis vagina all over campus? And I was like, yeah, penis vagina. There was definitely a, a sort of weight that was lifted to just be open about it. Everybody with Tourette's Syndrome, you have to come up with some sort of coping mechanism. And the more you try to hold back a tick or an urge, the more powerful it becomes. So to just embrace it becomes liberating in a lot of ways. And I'd say that's the biggest difference of not feeling controlled by it and controlling it yourself instead. Take a risk, mama. Lose your inhibitions. Life is way too short to never play the game, yeah. Dance all night, mama. Sing till you're gonna faint. Free your mind now, baby. Let's take a little risk. Take off those underpants. Dance naked in the street. Now we're free balling. Whip it out and piss away your shame. Would you peep it tips? Smack it, would you peep it tips? Whack it, would you peep it tips? Whack it, would you peep it tips? <laughs> That's Johnny Mantra pissing on something. He's on MySpace, J-O-N-N-Y Mantra. More confidential info right now from the notorious Juliet Wayne. She's won the Moth Grand Slams in New York and in Philly. And I don't know what you'd call this story, but I'd call it Poop Tooth. So uh, a couple years ago, um, I was... Uh, uh, a little bit, like a couple years clean off of drugs. I had to go to uh, rehab a couple times, um, but I was doing okay. And I, well, I started drinking again, which I was like, that's okay. Like, it's okay to drink again. And I went to this uh, Valentine's dance that this guy in, um, I'm from Philly, he had this Valentine's dance in a funeral parlor. And <laughs> this guy like organized it and, um, 
I was there and there was this this girl was there and she was like, hey, do you do? And I was like, I'm gonna do whatever you have. So we went down in the bathroom and we started doing all this coke and we're getting all wasted and everything and then I'm upstairs and I'm walking around and the thing about this Valentine's dance was that it was like uh, no drinking because this guy who was throwing it was like a, a straight edge vegan guy and I saw him walking around and like I'd seen him around town before, but all of a sudden, like when I saw him, I was like, I felt like the like the werewolf with the bib on and the fork and knife, like, <laughs> like I ride you like a skateboard, like you're so fucking hot. He was like a cross between like Jude Law and like Ira Glass, like totally had his. <laughs> So, and it's kind of like the opposite of me too. Like I was partying with all my friends and he was there like fixing stuff. He was like fixing decorations. And I was like, oh man, this guy needs to have some fun. And so next thing I know, I'm at a party again with him and we're playing this charades game. But like when I play charades, I don't write like an actor's name or, or like whatever, just like write whatever. And I wrote, um, you masturbate to parking tickets. And he got it and he was told, he like, was this guy that was like just totally whacking off and like and then just like blew his load at the $300 like you park near a fire hydrant thing and I was like oh my god it was like that part in the movie where like things are going forward and backward I was like oh my god I totally love you so we started dating and my friends were like oh that must be so weird because you know he, he lives really different than you like um, he's never even like drank before and I was like Ted have you ever drank before he's like I drank once when I was 10 but it was totally scary and I just started laughing I fell on the ground I totally lost control and I was like it sounds like you were on the right track like what happened that's, that's what all my friends do all the time and but it was like it was kind of cute like we were a little different but I was like it's like Jack Spratt like we there was this one diner in town where he was like oh they have veggie burgers and I was like oh good but like my eye is making the dotted line to like the cocktail clip art like yeah we can eat here and, and then I drink my dinner and he eats, eats his and, and I was like wow his drinks are lousy and he's like the food sucks here and so um, and then this one time I convinced him to have sex with me in this handicapped bathroom at my school and I had my period at the time and it was just like a mess like it looked like Oh, it looked like a crime scene. Like we just <laughs> slaughtered an animal or something. Or like made tempeh with like barbecue sauce. It doesn't have to be totally, I can be vegan. So, um, <laughs> but then there was kind of like a rift. His friends were different than my friends. I went to an art opening once that all his friends were at, and one of them was like, Ted, I think I see track marks on your girlfriend's arm. And he was like, I'll check it out. And he like came over to me, and he's like, Charlie just said that you had track marks on your arm. And I was like, dude, I don't do hard drugs anymore in front of people. And, <laughs> and if someone says that, you're supposed to punch them in the face. Like that's, but another thing that was going on at the time is this tooth, my, uh, my lateral incisor, was, uh, it wasn't there, it had fallen out from neglect. And <laughs> I had like a temporary tooth that like kind of stuck in, and there was like a little like cat tooth that like held it in. And I was like really nervous about telling about like sometimes, you know, it falls out and I feel really self-conscious when I'm laughing. You know, I feel like I always have to cover it up. And he was like, no, 
it's cool. I like it. Like, it's, you don't have to be perfect. It's fine. And I was like, I oh, just know what he's talking about. Like, this is so fucked up. So I would have it, and like, I was wait waitressing at the time, and sometimes I would, like, take it out. I would look out at, like, the table I was about to wait on and be like, oh, no, they're not getting too fucked up. And then, like, the five pocket of my jeans, and then other times be like, no, they get the tooth. They look all right. They look decent tippers. So I had this, like, tooth thing going on, and then, um, that we started to like, you know, you get like snippy and short with each other and it feels like, oh, this is not working out. And also like he was really like this ambitious like filmmaker guy, like really rising, you know, successful. And I was making my comeback as like a drug addict waitress. So I really wanted to <laughs> devote a lot of time to um, hanging out with uh, my coworkers and talking about work and doing lots of blow. And like brushing my teeth in cab rides on the way to his house, like, oh, no, I just got off work. Like, I'm not drunk. And we had, the, I was like, all right. So when you date someone who is like vegan, straight edge, whatever, it, it, the fancy dates like aren't that fancy because you can't really go out to eat anywhere. You know, like. There's not that many vegan, like, fine dining restaurants in Philadelphia. <laughs> and also, we didn't have any money. And also, he worked a lot, so we didn't really, like, go out. But then there was this wedding coming up, and I was like, oh my god, like, that's gonna be our fancy date. And that's gonna save us. Like, we're gonna be okay. Like, we're gonna go, and it's gonna be really romantic, and there's gonna be, like, dancing and laughing and everything. And so, the thing that tripped it up was that a week before the wedding, I was hanging out with my restaurant friends, and I was eating a slice of pizza, and I checked my pocket while I was eating it, and realized that the tooth wasn't in there, and it wasn't in my mouth either. <laughs> and I realized that I swallowed it. <laughs> I know hindsight's 2020. I should have made myself throw up, but like, <laughs> you don't like life is that thing where you gotta go through these things and figure it out. So the next day, I was talking to him. I was like, "Oh my god, I swallowed my tooth," and he was like, "Well, you can always look for it." And I was like, "I already started. Like, what is he talking about?" I started carrying around like rubber gloves in my um, backpack, and I was looking through my shit for this tooth because I was like, I want my fancy date. I'm going to be dressed nice and looking good. I'm going to find that tooth and wear it to the wedding. I'm a lady. So it took forever. I was looking for it, looking for it. I was like, oh, my fancy date. And so finally it was the day of the wedding. And it's like, you know, an hour before it was it was a couple doors down at my neighbor's house, little like West Philly wedding. And um I find it. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. I found it and I had like little like bleach thing ready and scrubbed it and everything. And then my sister was like, Ted's here, I want you guys to come down, and get your picture taken. And I was like, Tell him to just meet me there. Like getting my tooth ready. I uh, like stick it in get dressed, you know, and run down the street. And as I get there, I'm late, and the wedding's starting. And, like, the bride is coming down the steps with her dad, and they're playing the whole, like, bride-coming music. And I'm standing there, and I and I see Ted, and I stand next to him, and, whatever, and I, like, I'm, like, laughing at something, and he, like, see, and he sees, and he's like, what? Like, I can see him processing, like, what... I, how I have the tooth again. Like I can see the, the little movie in his head playing. And then like right as he does that, I'm like, I, I, I mean, I remembered everything, but I was still like, what's that smell? And I did that thing where you like close your mouth and you're like, 
like to see it. It's like, oh my god, my mouth smells like shit. But then the bride's coming down, the music's playing, and everyone's crying, and they're having that moment where they're like, what am I gonna get married? Oh my god, like, the, you know, in this cynical world, there's still people that are getting married and everything. And it was as if, like, the eyes of God were in the room, and they were like, you two will be married, and what's that smell? You guys need to break up. What the fuck is wrong with you? But, um, yeah, I, it, you know, I realized eventually that he was just this really great guy who accepted me as I was, even though I couldn't at the time. Um, but it just took me a couple years to uh, get my shit together. <laughs> this is Risk. Windsor for the Derby sent us this lovely music. Now, the secret about to be revealed comes from another show called No Phone Sex. Michael Newman tells the tale, No Phone Sex. I used to be addicted to phone sex. It started when I was in seventh grade. I guess through puberty as like a young man looks for porn and like just wants to see sex. I remember seeing in the local newspaper, in the classified section, there were ads for phone sex in the class. I mean, they were like Dateline, but some of them were like phone sex. It was like 1-800 like wet girls or whatever. And I called it and I heard this nasty message. And I thought, wow, this is free porn that no one has to know about. I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas. My mom and dad divorced when I was two years old, and my sister and I were raised by my grandmother. What I would do is, when my grandmother or sister were out of the house, I would always take the opportunity to just call the 1-800-SEX lines and just hear the introductory messages, because they were nasty. They were somewhat censored, but it was like porn. And it was good because it was free, and it never showed up on a phone bill. So that was the exciting part of it. And after a year of doing this, I wanted more. I wanted something more intense. So I heard about this international phone line. It had this obscenely long phone number, and purportedly, the operator said, it's so hot and nasty, it's banned in America. So like, I had to call it. I remember it was Saturday, it was midnight, and I decide I'm going to call the international line. And the only phone I could use at the time was the phone in the kitchen, which had a cord. So at midnight, I walk to the phone, and I'm completely naked, by the way, because I think if I want to enter this crazy world, I have to be totally ready and closed. We're just going to get in the way. The other crazy part about it was our house is very small, so if my grandmother or sister had to go to the bathroom, they would pass by the kitchen, and they would just glance over like two degrees, and they would see Michael naked on the floor of the kitchen with the phone in one hand, jacking off in the other hand, and literally I'm next to the cabinets that we keep our cereal. So I'm calling this international line, and it's amazing. It's nasty, it's explicit, and I'm getting in there, I'm doing my thing, and then I hear the door, and it's my grandmother's door, and then it occurred to me that I'm naked on the floor of the kitchen, and there's nothing I could do, so I just waited there. I had the receiver, and I just pressed a button to hang up the phone, and I ran to my bedroom, 
And I heard her leave the bathroom and go back to her room. And I was safe. I was so nervous about the phone bill that preemptively I sat down with my grandmother and I said, Grandma, I, I have to tell you something. I, I called this phone sex line because I, I was just very curious about it. I will never do this again. I'm never gonna call these lines again. And she was understanding. A few months later, I remember it was Sunday, it was midnight. I walk to the dining room, I take her purse, I bring it back to my room. By this time we have a cordless phone, so I have the cordless phone with me, and I take her credit card number, and I take the purse, put it back in the dining room. And of course I'm naked the whole time because I can't wear clothes apparently. So I call this 1-800 line, I enter in their credit card number, and then I hear, you've been approved, baby. And then I hung up. And that's really, honestly, that's all I wanted. I just wanted to hear that I was in this world. And I thought the phone sex company wouldn't charge me for like two seconds. But then the next day I called again, it was like 30 seconds, the next day a few more seconds, and the next day a few more minutes. And then after about three weeks, I had called well over 10 times doing the same thing, just listening in for a few minutes, thinking I'm gonna get free phone sex because they wouldn't charge me for like a minute. So a few days later, I'm in my bedroom and my grandmother burst into my room. Her face was beet red. Even to this day, I've never seen her so angry and there were tears just coming down her cheeks. She held the credit card bill and I had charged $400 on the bill and I started crying and she was screaming at me and she was saying, you're gonna be a child molester and a rapist. And honestly, I was so freaked out, I really believed her. For the next three days, I didn't really leave my room and I just promised myself I would never call these numbers again. After a few more days, it just kind of passed and we didn't really talk about it. And I wish I could say that I stopped calling those numbers, but I never really did. I just wanted to be in this crazy world this taboo place where I could do anything. And what was so appealing was, it was this crazy world that was right at my fingertips. I didn't have to like go to another country. All I had to do was walk naked at midnight to the kitchen and I would be there, which I do sometimes. Holman with the music there. I love that one. Leslie Goshko's up next. She's going to give us the lowdown here in The Ruski. So during my fifth grade year, it just seemed like the stars aligned so that everyone in my family either had an emotional drama or a physical one. 
My dad, who had always been a really heavy drinker, he was developing this whole new like series of quirks to where he would say, you know, we need to take all of the frozen hamburger meat out of our freezer and thaw it on the top of my truck in the middle of summer. And so we'd have all this hamburger meat thawing on top of the truck. And, and he also decided like pants weren't for him. And so he wouldn't wear them. And then my mom, who was really religious, she was getting all these like spiritual insights she was saying and so she would pull me aside and confide in me and she would say, Leslie, I know I can walk on water. I don't do it though because I don't think your father would understand. And then she would like walk away. And then my sister was literally having like a nervous breakdown and when she thought no one was looking, she would take strands of her hair and pull them out one by one and leave them all over the house until finally, after some time of doing this, she had pulled herself completely bald and she had to wear a wig for her senior photo. Oh, and I'm chunky. I like food too much. That's my thing. So one day my mom comes home and she goes, I know what this family needs. And I'm like, we're going to therapy. And she says, this family needs a Russian orphan for the summer. And I was like, out of everything on the list that like can help things, like I don't think the Soviets are what we need to help us out here. So she goes, get your stuff, we're, we're getting in the car. And I was like, this is going down today. So we get in the car, and we're driving, and we're driving, and I'm wondering, like, are we going to an orphanage? <laughs> like, an uh, adoption agency? Like, I don't even know any place around here like that. And we finally end up at this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And my mom stops the car and she looks at me and she's like, we're here. We get out of the car and we go into this farmhouse and there's two middle-aged Russian women in the back just standing there and they've converted the ground floor of this farmhouse into a store and they only sell Russian nesting dolls and barrettes. That's it. So my mom tells me to shop while she goes and talks to these women. And she goes and she's talking to them. And they pull out a piece of paper and they scribble on it. And they gave it to my mom. And my mom grabs me and she's like, all right, let's go. And we go outside and we get in the car and we shut the doors. And she goes, he'll be here on Friday. Like, let's back it up a little. Like, my dad walks around with his junk out. And my mom thinks she's a prophet. And my sister is like a parrot that like plucks itself about. Nobody checks this out. Like at no point does anyone say, I wonder if they're an okay family to host a Russian orphan. Like nobody checks it out at all. So Friday comes and we all get in the car and we go to Chicago O'Hare Airport and they bring us into this room and there's like 20 other families waiting there and we're all waiting for our orphans and all the all the kids come off the plane and like you're wondering which one is mine? You know, is it the little blonde girl? Oh, maybe it's that tall, you know, very handsome one with the sparkling eyes. The two Russian women were there and they just kind of like paired you up with one of them. And so they just kind of, you know, say, this is going to be your orphan, Maxime. And so we get our orphan. We are like the exact same age, and uh, he has dark hair, and he actually looked kind of like me. Like, we looked like we could have been like brother and sister. We drive home, and I know, like, this is a colossal <laughs> mistake. Like, we can't speak to him in Russian, he can't speak to us in English. But the summer actually goes off pretty much without a hitch, nothing really goes too wrong. So the end of the summer came and you had to either adopt your orphan or send them back. And so my mom went to my dad and she's like, hey, I want to adopt the orphan. And he's like, who? And she's like, sweet. 
So we go back to the farmhouse. We tell the women we want to get adopt the orphan. And they say, well, there's a lot of red tape right now with, with our government over there. We need to send all the orphans back, and then we're going to do the paperwork. And so all of the orphans got sent back. Every once in a while, we would get letters and pictures, and we'd go to the farmhouse, and they would translate them for us. Pretty soon, though, the letters were fewer and far between. We didn't go to the farmhouse as much, and eventually the letters stopped, and we stopped going to the farmhouse. And then there was this huge span of like years where no one in my family talked about this. Like it had never happened. Like we had never had some random Russian kid living in our house. A couple years ago, I started thinking about this and I called my mom and my dad and they were both on the line. And he's sober now, so he's a little more boring. So I asked them, I said, you know, what, what happened with that orphan? I was like, that was such a weird thing. And my mom goes, oh yeah, the orphan. Well, you know, they got into all that problem with the adoption because of their families. I was like, their families? I was like, they're orphans. She's like, no, no, I found out they had families. I was like, so do you mean that basically these two women arranged for their friends' kids to come over to the United States on like a glorified vacation on Americans' dimes? And she's like, yeah, I guess it's pretty much what happened. And there's this long pause on the line and my dad just goes, Wow. I was like, I know, that's insane, right? He goes, no, I could have sworn that was all a dream. <laughs> I'm talking about taking a That's it for The Secrets we're divulging today. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are Jeff Mersel and Andy Croner. Our associate producers are Timothy Meehan, Emily Altman, and Madison Perry. And remember what the Austrians say about Risk. Would you slide down the hump of a hunchback using your tongue as a brake? I don't think, I don't think I would. Well, I guess it kind of depends on the hunchback. <laughs> <laughs>